This episode of the ZappaCast is very respectfully dedicated to the memory of Nigel Lennon. Howdy folks, this is Scott Parker and you're listening to episode 31 of the ZappaCast for uh, Christmas of 2016 and also Zappadon 2016, ladies and gentlemen. But this time we have um, 
in addition to the usual cast of usuals uh, from Chicago, Mr. Scott Fisher. Hello. From somewhere a lot nearer to Brighton than I am, Andrew Greenaway. Hoi, hoi. And, of course, uh, the deacon of the University of Bogner Regis, Dr. Mickey Kers, <laughs> Professor Mickey <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> and our huge, enormous special guest, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> you may know him as the new guy, and he is definitely new to the Zappacast. We waited a long time for this, so you people better enjoy it. None other than the mighty and majestic Mike Keneally. <laughs> Hi. Well, wow, pressure's on. I didn't realize you'd been waiting a long time. Well, I think Andrew may have asked you once if you wanted to come on the show. <laughs> I was probably drunk. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. Can I tell the story of how of, of how um, you agreed to be on the show? Uh, as, sure, as, I, I, I need to be reminded. <laughs> as, I, as I understand it, you were driving down, I think it was I-95 on the latest uh, Beer for Dolphins trio tour with uh, Mr. Beller and Mr. Travers, and I guess you were listening to the last episode that we did, with the, the interview with Joe? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Joe was very happy to uh, to play that in the car, and, and actually, it was very excellent uh, driving music, music and conversation. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Well, see, yeah, that, it was really a very enjoyable show. Yeah, he was he was texting me while he was in the car with you guys, and he said, uh, <laughs> and he said, uh, I don't, or I was saying to him, I don't know what we're going to do for a follow up, and he said, we'll get Mike on the show, and I said, well. <laughs> I'll ask him as soon as he gets back from tour. He's like, I'll ask him right now. So he did. <laughs> yep, that's that's exactly how how difficult it was. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> yeah. So how was the tour? Oh, it was it was great fun. It, it was the the first time that I've taken the the trio version of BFD out of California after you know, over twenty years. Wow. So it was. Uh, I mean, this particular trio version. I've, I've toured with I toured with trios before, but never yeah. with Beller and Travers. Which, uh-huh. uh, even though that wasn't the original Beer for Dolphins, it, I, it's it's kind of gotten solidified in my mind as the as the dream trio. You yeah. know, just because we have a, a ridiculous communication that takes place between the three of us because um, we've been playing together for such a long time, and uh, you know, and we're really good friends. So that all kind of comes out on stage. Uh, and it was really fun. It was we got to play a, a few places we hadn't played before, so we got in front of some new people. Had some we had, in New York City. We had our our planned show was uh, was kind of pulled out from under us because the venue that we were booked in uh, got called by MTV to do a, a, a live taping that night, oh, and God. they were apparently going to be well. The, the club was getting well paid uh, by MTV to to, uh, to kick us out of the, the venue. So bye bye us, and, and we ended up because we only had a couple of weeks to to book a makeup date. We ended up in a place that was approximately the size of a shoe closet, uh, <laughs> but it was it was you know it was it was because it was small. It was easy to pack, so it was kind of exciting. There was you know stuffed full of people, and uh, and uh, and it was it was just you know. It kind of reminded me of some of the crazy shows we used to do in the '90s, and in, in in really tiny venues, and you know, it just just it's kind of nasty rock and roll type of a vibe, and it was fantastic, you know. So th- that that kind of set the tone, and uh, and we had just great fun playing and and hanging out. It was uh, a very very pleasurable couple of weeks. 
Oh, that's awesome. So can we expect on the East Coast, those of us who were on vacation that week and could not see you, um, <laughs> can we expect you to uh, come back to the East Coast? Well, the idea is is that we, we because due to other, you know, whatever everybody's obligations are, it's it's rare that I'm able to, like, do a follow-up tour, like, two years in a row. Yeah. In the same lo- same location, we we do want to try to address that finally and and see if we can get some kind of a of a regular rhythm going on with our with our touring schedule. So my hope is yes, in the second half of, of next year to uh, to return to those environs. Uh, that would be yeah. That would uh, that would definitely be awesome. And I will I will be there this time. Last time I was up in Woodstock, and I. My wife would have killed me if I came down to the city, but <laughs> yeah, you can't you can't be getting killed. <laughs> but ne- but but next time, Mike, I am buying dinner for the band. I told Joe already, so just I'm putting that on record. <laughs> All right, we're touring. It's official. Well, that's it. Well, yeah, we'll we'll go to the Outback or something. You know, you know. we'll tour for we'll food. A, we'll get a blooming onion. And, uh, <laughs> so. Um, well, I, I read somewhere that a blooming onion is the single least healthy thing that you can order anywhere in the world. <laughs> is that true? Yeah, <laughs> you should look it up. Like like, like blooming onion nutritional facts, and it'll come back that there's nothing worse you can eat, <laughs> including things that aren't food. See what see what happens when you get like j- just for the audience. What happens when you get any of the Zappa alumni on the show? is that you you always get at least one fact that you would not get anywhere. Like when when Tunis was on the show, he actually told us how many licks it takes to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop. So now it's three, right? <laughs> no, he had an exact number. Anybody remember it? It was something like 276 and he reeled that off the top of his head. Well, he he is a a, a non-stop uh resource for those kind of facts. It's true. <laughs> I thought he was full of beans, and then I looked it up, and I said, well, damn, he's right. So, what do I know? But So, you heard it here first. For the, do you guys over in England get, uh, do you have the Bloomin' Onion over there? Probably not. <laughs> no idea. We have You're better for it. Yeah. Deep fried Mars bars, I think, is what we have. <laughs> no, the Bloomin' Onion is a, a giant onion. I don't even know. Do those things exist in nature? But they... <laughs> <laughs> what they actually fry it's a giant onion just like everything over here is giant mick you know the food over here yeah yeah it's it's, it's large yeah they, they um, kill you with food. unnecessarily so if you have my honest opinion but yeah it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> well it's definitely unnecessarily large but you know that's what she said
So anyway, <laughs> sorry, Mike, we're very goofy today. That's fine. Um, so what what's what's it like playing with the trio? Like you you have that? Do you have greater freedom or just greater say telepathy or? Yeah, it's it's the power trio format is uh, the most sort of liberating thing, I guess, for a for a guitar player or for a melodic instrument because. You're basically in in charge of the entire melodic content, and texturally, when you've just got bass and drums behind you, and of course, when Brian Beller's playing bass, he's he's covering a lot of ground harmonically, so it it never really feels like there's there's not enough going on because you know yeah. Beller generates enough musical information for three normal bass players, mm-hmm. and uh, and and Joe's uh, you know what Joe does on the drums is so consistently inventive. And at the same time, so solid and and kind of real ballsy. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's not overly academic, even though he can play anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that that's a great combination. And for me, I, you know, I've got the I've got the guitar in my hands. I've got a keyboard there. So if I decide to go on some flight of fancy in the middle of the song where I I want to reharmonize the song, and you know, just like play some weird chord on the keyboard and then play some guitar line to go over it, I have pretty much carte blanche to do whatever I feel like doing, uh, which is, you know, very liberating, you know, and at the same time, there's a, there is a little bit of a lonely aspect to it, uh, which is, which is why uh, when we got back from tour and, and we did two nights at the baked potato, we did the first night as a trio, which was kind of me saying, okay, this is the end of that phase. Mm-hmm. And then the second night, we had Rick Musalem come in to play guitar, and that was the beginning of the quartet phase. And I'd like to do as, as much playing with the quartet as is feasible next year. Of course, financially, it's a great deal more feasible to tour with a trio than a quartet, sure. and there's more room in the van and all that kind of thing. So those are the sort of logistics that, that need to be dealt with. Um, but musically... There's, you know, there's there's definite plus points to both things. I, I I really love the trio, but then I love having Rick there because he's such a sympathetic player. His tone is great. Mm-hmm. His, you know, his input is always great. And so, you know, they're both fantastic. Which and I'm just I'm just grateful that that both are options. You know. Yeah, I mean, you've got. I mean, you're certainly never not busy. Is that the right way of putting it? You're never not busy. You're about to. You're going out with Satriani, right? Yeah, we've got a South American tour uh, that's most of December, yep. so that's that's most of my holidays spoken for. And uh, <laughs> and then in in February we are uh, in Asia for a, a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. and and that I believe uh, that uh, represents the end of this particular album cycle for the. The Shockwave Supernova album that we did last year. Yeah, and so we've been touring on and off uh, for like a year and a half, not consistently. You know, we'll do, we'll, we started with two months. I believe we started with two months in Europe, and then we took a few weeks off, and then we did two months in the U.S. and we took a few weeks off. Uh, we and came back around to uh, to Europe to do a month of mostly festivals. Yep, and now we're now we've got uh, South America and then Asia next year. So. If you if you if you cram them all together without breaks, it probably represents about only like six or seven months of touring. But but it got it got stretched out over a year and a half, which is great because that gives me time to do stuff like tour with Beer for Dolphins. Yep. So uh, and at the same time, it's really cool that there's this 
this regular thing, this regular gig happening with with Safiani, which is uh, you know sort of allows me to do things like go on the road with my own band and and uh, make very little money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, the, I mean, just think of the uh, you make enough money for food, I'm sure, on the road. Yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, I, I just saw the, the, the final accounting for my tour and, and uh, actually did uh, not only pay for my own food, but a, a, you know, a few pennies besides, so it, it worked out okay. Hey, see? <laughs> see, you can't you can make... See, you can make you a can. living on the road if your definition of living is, is extremely relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> we 
I'm uh, I'm trampling over the conversation here, gentlemen. Would you like to uh, jump in? Can I just say uh, thanks for Scambot too. Love him. Uh, you're so welcome. Race the stars and roll and freezer burn are my current faves. But yep. yeah, oh, oh, that's that's really really cool. Thank you. I'm glad you like him. Good. Yeah, count me in on that one too. And I think uh, you were just talking about uh, Scambot too, weren't you, Mister Fisher? On the, oh no, uh, so much uh, about Sluggo. Uh, I was, uh, yeah, just Sluggo for me personally uh, was, that's actually what uh, had gotten me uh, turned on the mic and, and realizing his career after after Frank and um, made a trek with a buddy of mine, a car trip all the way up to Milwaukee to catch him uh, and the rest of Beer for Dolphins back on that tour. So, um, and then uh, just joking around with Andrew about, uh, 
he said uh, Sluggo two, one or two, and I said, well, you're talking about Skimbop, but he brought up the uh, the special editions, and uh, and actually he brought up a great point because that special edition, uh, Mike, that you came out with a Sluggo for me personally was uh, it's a gem because uh, a uh, nostalgically I just I love the album, and uh, but hearing everything in five one. Mm. To me, was uh, was fantastic. Do you have plans for uh, like dancing or or anything uh, doing a five one release? I think. I mean, it's interesting you should mention dancing uh, since it's such a large band. I think that that is an album that would 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 benefit pretty uh, uh, significantly from from that treatment. Uh, I'm glad that you're happy with the with the new mixes on Sluggo because there's always a little <laughs> bit of a of a you know I I know that we're in the midst of a of a sort of a, a remix moment in uh, in music where uh, every, you know just about every album from 40 years ago is being revisited and uh, and all and, by Steve Wilson yeah exactly all by the majority, Steve Wilson yeah. the majority of them yeah. And uh, and sometimes in a really you know revelatory way like I, you know I th- I think his his remix on Lark's Tongues and Aspic to me was an actual improvement and yes. and uh, and also uh, the one he did for Drums and Wires uh, yep. by XTC I really really love and but the, but there's a danger when it's a, an album that you that you've listened to a bunch and you've you know it's been a part of your life and and to to presume to say okay we're, we're and, you know and, and Stephen always you know makes the point he's not you know attempting to improve things he's just you know trying to, to shine a different light on it mm-hmm. with, for me with with Sluggo I, I was making an attempt to improve it and and I, I kind of to my way of thinking if I'm going to go back and do that with with one of my albums I, I really want to make sure that there's there's a value reason for asking people to buy the thing again and that but it just so happened that you know sluggo was was an album that was because of circumstances and scheduling at the time the final mix on the album was done rather quickly and it was it was it was one that i always personally had issues with it's it's not at all a reflection on the work that that jeff forrest who was the the engineer and the the main mixer on that album did he did a, a superb job under the uh the, the circumstances because I had to like leave for a Steve Vai tour we were on a specific schedule that we had to adhere to we had one mix that had to be had to be discarded and then we went back into the studio with a very small amount of time and had to remix and remaster so hmm. we ended up with, with Sluggo the way it's been for years and you know it was a very well received album so I'm, I I was always grateful for it and I always really liked the album but in the back of my head I always thought that sonically there was something just something that else that I was reaching for and I was really happy with the with the the sound that Mike Harris and I were getting in the in the, the studio that I've worked in for the last 10 years uh, and so and then there was this idea about doing a surround mix and and you know and I, I don't know how how many people really listen to surround music at home i think it's kind of a a specialized thing so you you really have to look at it you know in terms of practicalities if the the time that it takes i i swear that i I, we took as much time on the sluggo mix as 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 we did on any other new album that that i record precisely because in my mind the stakes were so high i really didn't want people to listen to this new mix and think well this is pointless i I, you know it's not as good as the original i wanted i wanted the thing to just pop out of the speakers and and have people go oh yeah obviously this sounds better Uh so and that's that takes time (laughs) so we 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 worked hard on that sluggo mix i'm really glad that you like it man yeah i love it thank you you're very welcome i went back to hat this week i hadn't uh listened to hat and I don't know, a few months or so, but 
because uh, you know, I mean, Hap when that album came out, it was like a revelation <laughs> for me. <laughs> Because, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd seen you with the 88 band. I'd seen you with Zappa's Universe. But this was, I, yeah, this is something wholly other, you know. And we're well, rocking... That, that was, yeah, that was like the, the first, apart from just like some cassettes that I was marketing from my house, that was the, the first that anybody heard of my own music. Well, that's it. And, and we're rocking all night with the tangy flavor of cheddar was my answering machine message my outgoing answering machine message for quite a all while five, five minutes of it yeah. you want to leave me a message you got to sit through this <laughs> oh no back at it was a, a cassette answering machine and i forced those people to sit there and listen to it that's awesome yeah i got the the famous call from my what the hell is this so that's <laughs> well i mean and actually that's another one i don't know if scott if you have the uh, the remastered hat but I do. That, that's that, okay that's one where when we were going to reissue it because you know we got the well that was another reason to reissue sluggo of course is that the original version had been out of print for years mm-hmm. uh but so that you know about 10 years ago when we reissued hat and dustbeck which had also been out of print for a long time we weren't remixing but i went back to uh just the original session dat tapes and mm-hmm. and found and found a dat tape of prior to editing yeah. Uh, so, like, the whole album was in, was still in discrete chunks. We hadn't yet gone into, I don't even remember what digital editing platform we were using in 1992. It was it was pre Pro Tools, I think. So I can't remember what it was, but I found this DAT with all the the pieces of the album prior to being glued together in the editing bay, and they sounded better than the original CD. And I'm like, oh my god, you know, at the time I had never made an album before, uh, you know, it, so I didn't consider that there might have been something weird in the signal chain in the editing bay. Mm-hmm. Um, but there apparently there was because you know when I when I went back and I heard this, you know, pre-edited that, everything sounded fuller to me. Everything sounded much much bigger and 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 uh, realer. Uh, just more three-dimensional. So for the hat remaster, uh, I I re-edited the whole album, which was fun because I I took the opportunity to to do things like in um, like Lightning Roy, which was uh, in about you know fifty different chunks that needed to be edited together, mm-hmm. uh, and I would like put like just an extra second of silence in one section where there was originally three seconds of silence, and maybe now I put four, <laughs> just just to, just to screw with people yeah. a little bit, um, and also was able to uh, uh, restore some some solos like the solo in Snowcow and, and some other sections that I had to shorten because. We were limited to like seventy-two minutes in nineteen ninety-two yeah, on a CD, and and the technology has, has evolved to where you can you know you can safely go above that that threshold now. So the new hat is not only longer, but I think it, it sounds a whole lot better.
so you're slowly ramping up the back catalog to be where you want it to be sonically and yeah exactly so you know right now and and well that dust back i think always sounded good but I, i i auditioned as many tapes as i could and and uh I, I I changed a few things on Dustback, and I I think the new Dustback sounds better than the original Dustback, and the new Hat and new Sluggo definitely sound better than than the original. So that that you know original core catalog is uh, is in pretty good shape right now. <laughs> well, it's like you know those albums where you where you took off the original bass and drums and replaced them with Chad Wackerman and Arthur Barrow. <laughs> I'm, uh, I haven't I haven't released those mixes. <laughs> Well, you wanted to make them more contemporary, you know, for the kids. So oh, I know. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. It's Andrew. Right. Yeah, talking about those um, early albums, um, I'm sure you mentioned that you're going to do a deluxe version of Half Alive in Hollywood, possibly with Soap Scum Remover and DVD. Is that is that on the cards? I, 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 I don't know. It's it's, it's like I it's it's something that that has has come up, and it always seems to kind of get shuffled to the background. Uh, and I also, you know, how many people buy DVDs anymore? You know, it's, it's like, I, I would be, I'm, I'm like more interested in a way because Half Alive in Hollywood is available as a download from, from our website and, uh, Self Scum Remover is, is not, we could, we could conceivably make that available as a download as well. I don't know. It's just that with, with, you know, album sales being what they are these days, you have to be really, really selective about you know what you choose to actually manufacture. Uh, so it, you have to make sure that there's a reason to do it. And I know that there are people that that want those things to be available again, and I'm not you know I'm I'm not dismissive of that fact, but we just have to be sensible about it. But those those you know Half Alive in Hollywood does have a, a vibe to it. There's something about that record, even though it was you know kind of cobbled together and disc two is in mono and you know it, it's like a little bit a little bit strange, but it definitely captures that moment in time really effectively. You know, uh, and Tos Panos is the drummer on that album, and he's you know a, he's a beast all the way through it. You know, there's there's a ferociousness to to that stuff. We were all a lot younger and a lot hungrier in a way. <laughs> you know, that, believe me, I'm, I I'm, I take it into account, uh, Andrew, that 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 there is a, a desire for that stuff. And uh, but I, to me, I think maybe a reissue of the mistakes might be a, a slightly higher priority because that that album is uh, is so uh, obscure and it, it's you know it's just like an interesting collection of players and I, th- I think people would more people I think might get some mileage out of that but I don't know maybe I'm mistaken about that <laughs> yeah I, I actually was going to ask about Half Alive and Hollywood what did you record that on? well that was it was the first disc of Half Alive in Hollywood was uh, a, a we went to the the Hollywood uh, Guitar Institute uh-huh. and uh, and just recorded in their studio and we were basically like a, a test band for the students to practice uh, doing a real live recording session with you know yeah. so we, we were the guinea pigs while uh, the, the students were doing stuff and uh, and strangely enough what you're hearing on that disc on disc one is is just like a live feed of the headphone mix that wow. that, the, that the three of us were listening to as we were recording um, <laughs> and so in some ways the, uh, the because we did attempt a, a remix you know it, we, we attempted a proper mix and for whatever reason and I can't remember what the platform was uh, you know if, if that was Pro Tools or what uh, it was like 1995 yeah. so 
it, it, it could have been Pro Tools, but it was, uh, I, I believe it was digitally recorded. I mean, this it's so long ago now that I can't even remember. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, it was definitely digitally recorded. I'm just not sure that I re- recall what the platform was. You know, we, we went in and we did a mix, and I, I have a copy of the mix that we did, and it just didn't sound as powerful as the as the, the original headphone feed. So we just went ahead and stuck that on the on the CD. And then the, the second one was a, a live thing that we did at the uh, at the performance space at uh, at the Guitar Institute, mm-hmm. and uh, and that sounded great. But it was in mono, you know. And I'm like thinking, well, do I put this out? But I just kept listening to it, and it sounded great. So I said, yeah, we put it out. So that was that's what that was. <laughs> I think that the uh, the you know, the master format for the second disc was just a, a DAT uh, off of the uh, the soundboard, which for whatever reason was not a stereo feed, and probably sounds more powerful for that actually. Well, that's true. Yeah, you get yeah you get your money's worth with mono. I think in terms of you know just just getting more power out of it, but. Uh... Yeah, and it's easier for uh, for Brian Wilson to listen to.
<laughs> so I guess based on what you said there, Mike, um, no plans to reissue more of the tar, tar tapes. Oh, um, that has not come up in in, in quite a while. I, I think that that is another thing where the possibly the way to go would be to make them available for download at some point. Yeah. But I, I'll be honest with you, there are you know when I I hand selected songs from those cassettes to put on the two uh, CD volumes that came out in the 90s, Tart Tapes Volume 1 and 2, I quite intensely left off a lot of songs that frankly embarrassed me. <laughs> and, and, uh, but, you know, it's like it's a part of my life. I shouldn't, uh, I, I shouldn't be... Uh, I, I can't make believe it didn't happen because it did, but I also... You know, I, I understand emotionally why I haven't been in a hurry to get that stuff out there because there's, you know, certain songs that just make me cringe. Uh... But uh, you, you got to give the people what they want. <laughs> just, you know, people have, n have not exactly been clamoring and beating down my door, saying, "When are you going to put out fashion poisoning?" But but it's uh, but 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 you know, it's it's something that somebody wants to hear, and uh, and perhaps one day we'll we'll find a way to make it available. But at the moment, it's like I've worked so long and so hard on Scambot Two and Inkling. Uh, that I have uh, quite intentionally given myself some time off uh, from thinking about putting out albums. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have this big, tall stack of albums that I put out in the last, you know, 24 years. And, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound like uh, Frank breaking up the, uh, the mothers in 1969 and saying, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to give the public time to catch up with me. Yeah. Uh, but... <laughs> In a way, you know, it's like there is this, this huge amount of music that that uh, you know only a, a select, very intelligent group of listeners know about, and uh, <laughs> you're giving um, us way too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys pretty much represent the entire fan base. Um, <laughs> no, no, you're fine. I've been doing a lot of playing live and uh, and just sort of like attending to other parts of life, <laughs> and uh, and I'm, I uh, kind of see myself uh, doing that for the the near foreseeable future. Uh, uh, so if it's a if it's a little while before any sort of albums uh, come out, whether they be new albums or reissues, it's just because I I've uh, I feel the need personally to take a little bit of a breather. Unless Andy Partridge calls. Well, we actually have spoken, and and that the, the desire certainly exists for us to do another collaboration. Um, but the last one took such a long time to actually happen. Uh, I mean, uh, to you know, actually finally become an album, yeah. uh, because you know we began collaborating on, in 2006, and then the album finally came out in 2012. So even if I was to get together with Andy sometime soon uh, to to initiate the writing process. Uh, it would it would no doubt be quite some time before it resulted in any kind of an album. But for the, the next time we do something together, I would love for him to be more directly involved in the actual recording of the thing rather than than just the the writing. Because mm. um, when we started writing the stuff that ended up being Wingbeat Fantastic, we didn't have a specific idea about what the final product was going to be. Uh, we just knew that we wanted to try writing some songs together. Uh, so. I'm going to see if I can use my uh, my special telepathic powers or something to see if I can get him to actually participate in the the recording on the next one. That would be fun. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, because you might be the one person who can get him to actually do much of anything these days. <laughs> he well, seems from what I, what I understand, and I, I'm, you know, uh, if, if I played any part in this, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. I, I, I think that he's, like, a little bit fired up about, about releasing some new music. And, and what I heard is that he's actually uh, in the process of, of putting together an album where he records his own versions of songs that he has written with other people because he's Ooh. he's been collaborating on songwriting with a, a bunch of different people over the last many years since the last XTC record came out. Yep. I don't know I don't know whether he's planning on covering any of the stuff from Wingbeat Fantastic. It would be awesome if he did. But what that indicates to me is that if if he's, you know, because he's been like very apart from like releasing these fuzzy warbles collections of, of demos and, and things mm-hmm. he's been very uh resistant to the idea of putting out an an, an andy partridge album even for some reason that that concept is uh is uh was distasteful to him for some reason yeah. and i think that if, if he puts out this album of, of his versions of of songs that he's written with other people inevitably that will come out as as you know, an Andy Partridge album of new music and and or at least new recordings. That I think is an encouraging step in the right direction. So uh, we'll we'll see. You know, I'm, everyone obviously has their own things that they work through when they decide what they want to do with their lives, and uh, nobody else can say anything about that. So, uh, but I would I would love to actually do some you know do some recordings with him that that got released you know in their final versions with the both of us. That would be a great deal of fun. Yeah, see, was it true that they um, came to one of the 88 shows? Yeah, that's how we met. Uh, yeah, that's what I thought. And that was, and that was Scott Tunis's, uh, he initiated that process, and to really? me, I thought it was so out of the realm of possibility, because I knew that, you know, Andy had stopped performing years before, and had become somewhat reclusive, uh, and... Uh, and, but, you know, Scott, I remember real specifically, we were sitting in the hotel, and he's like, I'm going to call Virgin Records. And I was like, okay. Because, <laughs> you know, we're both huge XTC fans. I'm going to call Virgin Records and invite XTC to the show. All right, Scott, you go. You know, it's like I, I didn't think there was any chance of it. To me, it was a practical <laughs> joke, somewhat akin to, you know, you know, ordering a pizza to be delivered to somebody's door that they didn't, that they didn't order. You know? uh, but uh, but you know so I sat in the room giggling literally while he was calling uh, Virgin Records saying yes we would like to cordially invite Andy and Colin and Dave to the uh, to any of the uh, the UK uh, Zappa shows uh, and uh, what do you know the 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 invitation got through and Andy and Dave showed up at uh, at Birmingham and uh, and it was uh, it was unbelievable you know the, it, it was completely mind blowing and they enjoyed the show so much and. And they were, you know, both huge Zappa fans, yep. and and uh, Andy had, I believe, he said that he actually hadn't even attended a concert since he stopped doing concerts, which was like six years, you know. Uh, so it was a de- it was a definite achievement to to prize Andy from his home base and, and get him to come out. Uh, but you know, they had a good time and they were extremely engaging and friendly and social and we hung out for a while after the show and and they just said well you know we're going to be in 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 california uh later in the year making our next record you you guys should come and hang out with us whenever you can uh which we did at every possible opportunity so when they were when they were making oranges and lemons i was just like as much as I, i was living in san diego at the time and they were recording in la so 
I had to uh, do a lot of drives, but I, I obviously I wanted to see them make this record. So I, I spent as much time as I could being a fly on the wall while they were working on that record and uh, stayed in Dave Gregory's condo that, that the record oh, label had, had put him up in and just, you know, basically just was was in their face all the time. And, and at, at the time, we weren't talking about any kind of collaborating, but we stayed in touch. And, and neither Andy or I can remember who of us first suggested, why don't we try writing some songs together? But somehow the suggestion was on the table and we kicked it around for a while and eventually, you know, there was no way... And he was going to come to the U.S., uh, so I flew over to the U.K. and spent uh, like a week in Swindon in 2006, and then a second week in 2008. And uh, and I had thought we were going to do a third week. Uh, uh, at that time, we had like nine songs in the works, and I thought we were going to do a third week and and uh, and solidify things further. But then I saw an interview with Andy online where somebody said, "Well, what's the what's the." Uh, What's the status of the collaboration with Mike Keneally? And he's like, I don't know. I'm waiting for him to make an album. It's taken him forever. Yeah, I heard that interview. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, really? I didn't know that that's what was happening. Because to me, the eventual final form of these songs, or, you know, what the release was going to be, was still in the ether. You know, I didn't know what was going to happen. I thought there was still a possibility. One thing that we had discussed was me making the album in the UK with, with... Andy producing, and he was he was open to that. But then you know, all of a sudden, I see he's like impatiently waiting for me to actually record the things. So I said, okay. I, I emailed him. We hadn't spoken for a few months at that point, and you know, I'll grant you, I'd been very distracted by any number of you know al- other albums I was working on. I, you know, Scambot One came out during that time, and yep. I did this collaboration with Marco Miniman called Evidence of Humanity, and I was I was touring with. Both Death Clock and Satriani at you know pretty much at like one after the other for a couple of years, so my schedule was hectic and I had kind of backburnered this stuff that I was writing with Annie Andy, thinking that we were going to do one more session to really firm it up. But then I saw this thing and I, uh, this interview and I wrote him and I said, "Okay, I'll tell you what, I'll just make the album <laughs> and I'll uh, and I'll I'll send you the uh, I'll send you you know mixes as I'm working on it, and which is what I ended up doing as I was working on Wayne Be Fantastic. I would send him uh, songs in progress. He would send me long emails with you know his input. So he was in that sense continuing to collaborate. You know, he was sort of like a transatlantic associate producer uh, and. Uh, you know, ended up with an album. I, I tell you, I kind of made that album for an audience of one. <laughs> I really yeah. wanted Andy, I wanted Andy to like it, yeah. and uh, and he was he was very happy with it. So to me, that was uh, that was a chalk that one up for the the win column. Well, it's a it's a beautiful album. I mean, I Thank have you. to I have to say, I was listening to Wing Beat Elastic actually uh, this morning, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's uh, yeah, that's a beautiful and necessary companion piece for those of you Thank who you. don't have it. Thank you. That I, I think that album kind of flew under the radar because you know, I, I think maybe people are skeptical of, of quote remix albums unquote. But I yep. think that there's there's something kind of special about that one. And there's a, there's actually a bunch of of, uh, of standalone music on that album that wasn't released you know in any other form. Yeah. And and, uh, and all the, the the remixes are actually really cool on that record. So I was just saying, Andy appears on there as well, singing. And yeah, there's there's a demo version of uh, "You Kill Me" that that actually features Andy's vocal on the, on Wayne Beat Elastic. So I, you know, I, I do think that more people should know about that release. You 
your awful puns and your big pop guns. You kill me with your knowing winks and your sponsored links. But I won't lay down and die. No, I won't lay down and die just because you kill me. Your crazy gags and your paper flags You kill me with your tickled ribs and your corporate fibs But I won't lay down and die No, I won't lay down and die Just because you going to say that that's something that I've always I've credited you uh, and Andy actually shares that in common as well but your ability to have these companion or bookend albums with a lot of your releases and uh, oftentimes there's parts I know for Wooden Smoke comes to mind is that Wooden Smoke Asleep I love uh, you know just a lot of the it's it's like the other side of, of things or a or a what if or an alternate universe of right. some of the releases. So it's great to hear that as a listener for something that you enjoy. It's it's an alternate take. It's great that that didn't just sit on a, sel- a shelf or wait for a 
you know, the 25th anniversary. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, the, the idea of Wouldn't Smoke Asleep is that the, the, the concept behind that is that the listener has fallen asleep while listening to Wooden Smoke, and that's yeah. the dream that they have about the, the main album. Oh, uh, oh yeah. That's nice. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Which works with the cover that you had with you on the console. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. But we may have already answered this uh, before we started talking, before we started recording the show. Because I was going to ask, have you ever been in a greater rage since kicking in the shop window on the night sofa from Sapper's Universe was awarded a Grammy? And it may have been a few, just a few weeks ago. Have I been in a, in a similar state of rage? Yes. <laughs> Um, no, you know, I, I, I think I've managed uh, through meditation and other uh, practices to to uh, not allow myself to become that enraged uh, anymore in, in recent years. Although uh, certainly, uh, you know, recent developments in uh, in in our uh, in our country here have uh, I could hardly be blamed, <laughs> but but I've. Uh, I've uh, I've managed not to kick anything, but uh, you know, but I, maybe that's preferable to uh, being catatonic. So we'll see. I may have to kick something. <laughs> I know Scott, Scott Fisher knows the story about that. Do you, you, do you other guys know about the story behind that? No, actually, I don't. No? Would you care to be like Mike or? Uh... Well, I don't know. I, I mean, it's it's. It, I was I was. Uh, there were certain aspects about the about the Zappa's universe thing that that uh, that troubled me that I don't necessarily feel like I need to to rehash. But uh, I, I mainly uh, it's it became sort of a point of contention between uh, Frank and Gail and Polygram who who put out the album yeah. and the, and the video. So something that in, uh, you know initially was intended to be uh, you know a tribute and and uh, an embracing of, of Frank uh, became a uh, you know a, a thorn in his side and that was that was a drag to me because obviously I, I I took part in it with the best of intentions as 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 everyone did so I was I was already feeling a little weird about about uh, Zappa's universe and then it won the Grammy and you know I should I should have been happy about that but for whatever reason I was filled with rage and I was. In a, uh, I was in a Tower Records in New York City with uh, with Joe Travers with the the Grammys playing on an overhead TV, and when it was mentioned that that it won the Grammy, uh, I became upset and I, I kicked in a window, <laughs> and, <laughs> and um and and Joe and I went out on the sidewalk and and uh, you know we thought we we should go and <laughs> and one of the guys one of the guys who worked in the store. Came, you know, he came running out and he said, "Because we were actually outside the, the building when I kicked the window, we were we were walking, we were walking outside. We were leaving. You know, I, I saw this on the TV. I said, ah, and I and I and I left the door. And we were, as we were walking out and you know leaving, Joe said something, and and it just it was the wrong thing to say at the wrong time. And I and I and I kicked a window out of anger. I didn't expect to break it, but it broke. And uh, and this guy came came running out and he looked at us and he said." Did you just do that? And I said, "Yeah." And he and he says, "Wait here." And he oh, goes God. inside. And and, uh, and Joe and I look at each other for like ten seconds. And and uh, and one of us said, "Should we run?" And 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 the other one said, "Yeah." And then we just started to run. That's that's you know there's some civil disobedience for you. There's your there's your Keith Moon moment, <laughs> and that's probably you know in retrospect that might have been the, the defining moment in the in the bankruptcy of Tower Records. So I'm really <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, we can withstand the changes in the industry, but we will never deal with somebody kicking in our window. Exactly. <laughs> that was like Napster times three. <laughs> That's a really fascinating story, Mike, but here to give his side of the tale is none other than the Maltmeister himself, Mr. Joe Travers. So, Mr. Travers, you yeah. wreaked damage and mayhem and all sorts of stuff like that at Tower Records, I understand? Yeah, I was I was there. It was hilarious. Uh, basically, what I remember happening was I saw the announcement. You know how on the Grammys when they when they right before a commercial break they they always do that. You know, uh, earlier today the following awards were given to these categories, and then they start listing you know all the the classical stuff and stuff that nobody gives a shit about. You know, whatever yeah. or, or what they think nobody gives a shit about, and then. It was during that that I happened to glance at, up at the TV, and Mike and I were in New York City, you know, we were on tour with Z, and we were just kind of like hanging out in New York City, and we went to Tower Records to do some record shopping, and the Grammys were on, and so I looked up on the monitor, and I see the announcement of the Zappa's Universe Grammy. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess I walk over to Mike, and I was like, hey, man, uh, I just saw the announcement. Uh, Steve Vai just got the uh, Grammy Award for Zappa's Universe, and he <laughs> immediately was just like, "Uh," and then, and then he spits on the floor. Oh God! And then he starts rummaging around Tower Records. I'm following around. I'm following him around like like a little puppy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he like walks over to the Zappa section, and he takes all the Zappa's Universe CDs and puts them underneath the display and then takes all the yellow shark CDs and puts them in his plate. <laughs> and then he, like, you know, starts, like, and he's, like, rampant. And he walks outside, and I follow him out, and um, and he, I guess we were done shopping at Tower Records at that point. <laughs> and uh, we go outside, and he just kicks the building. He's just so angry that he kicks the building, and uh, he happened to kick a, a, a plate of glass. In the, in the display there, you know, like the, the, the building display. Yeah. And, and instantly everything froze. And there was a, there was a huge, uh, African American security guard standing there and he saw it all happen and he looked at us and we looked at him and he goes, I'll be right back. And he turns around and walks into the store and I look at Mike and I was like, dude, we should bail. And he goes, yep. And I turn around. <laughs> And we ran down the street. We ran down the street and hailed a cab, got in the cab, and just, just drove away. And that's what happened. And you never heard anything else? Oh, no. Oh, man, that, that was that was so funny. I mean, we were in the backseat of the cab, and I was like, to the village, you know? And yeah. we were like, oh, my God, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> you know? So funny. Oh my god! My god! What a great, what a great story! <laughs> I mean, I think he was just really offended because you know Steve had doctored and sweetened up his performance, uh, you know, in the studio, so it wasn't all live, yeah. you know. And and the fact that something like the Yellow Shark wouldn't even get a mere mention or a notice or a submission or nothing, mm-hmm. but Zappa's Universe did, you know, and he was just kind of like. Ah. You know, like <laughs> another you know another Gram- Grammys are bogus kind of moment. You know, so, yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah, that was that was hilarious. I, I when it was happening, I didn't actually expect Mike to have that um, 
reaction. So I was kind of like following him around the store, going, "But what's the matter? What's the matter? You know, that kind of thing." Yeah. Oh god, that was funny. Why are you mad, bro? Why are you mad? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Spinning oh on the floor. Oh my god. Oh, uh, I didn't even hear he spit on the floor. That's fucking yeah. great. It was so funny. It was so funny. Oh man. Yeah, I'll never forget that story. That's for sure.
Mick, do you want to ask? Am I gonna yeah, go? yeah. If you've got a minute, Mike, if you can forgive me, I'd, I'd like to go back to '88 and ask a couple of boringly anal, technical, gear-related questions because that's sort of my job. I was looking through your, um, for inspiration, I was looking through your 88 diaries again today for the first time for a long time. And I, I read again the story of how you were given the red Kramer guitar with just one control that then got turned into a synth input guitar. And I wonder, you sort of just touched on it passing. Do you actually, did you actually see Frank use this guitar on the Sinclair? Um, I, I, he certainly didn't use it on stage. And right. I, I don't know. I, I, from my recollection of it is that he was not, uh, pleased with the, with the tracking capabilities of the, of the guitar with, with the synth. He, he attempted to input some stuff that way. I don't know whether any, it, any of that material actually found its way into finished compositions, but uh, certainly the guitar wasn't as satisfying to him as his standard methodologies of either using the keyboard or the octopad or typing it in. So, uh, yeah, I would, I'd say that, that guitar was, uh, was uh, liberated from me, and, uh, and, uh, and Frank might have actually played it for a good five or ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and and how, what what did, what interface did he put into it? Uh, it? I don't know. I never actually. I I I, oh, okay. I I heard only that he intended it for that for right. that purpose, but but I never saw it again. Okay. Uh, as nobody knows anything about yeah. how asked we, so we didn't remember what happened to it. So, yeah, lo lost in the midst of time. And another. Uh, this is just a. It's a really obscure um, little question, but um, you might be one of the few musicians who would have noticed. Frank used to use a pig nose backstage for a sort of practice end for tuning up. And I've just seen one picture from the 78, 98 tour when you had an Oberheim studio practice amp, and I just wondered if you paid any attention to that, if he had other amps for you guys, or if you um, remember anything about that at all. It was an I, unusual amp. I, I wish I did, and, I, and I, it's, it's, <laughs> it's funny, you know, we were, we were all uh, uh, in... The, you know, the rest of the band was in one dressing room, and Frank was in his. And uh, right. anytime, anytime I went into Frank's dressing room, uh, he was never playing. It was, it was always uh, to discuss what the show was going to be that night. So, if uh, I never actually saw him uh, uh, practicing, running tunes backstage, so I, I never paid that much attention to what his practice amp was. That is intriguing. It was an, an Oberheim amplifier, eh? Yeah, a little mini Oberheim studio amp. Well, in one picture that we've seen. But, yeah. Well, you know more than I do about that as a result of having <laughs> seen that photo. But I, I'll, I'll confess to you that I'm possibly the worst person you could have this conversation with because I'm very much not a gear-oriented person. I, yeah. I understand I understand the necessity of it, um, <laughs> but but uh, I'm, I'm I'm constantly because I'm always I'm I'm goal-oriented in terms of getting the, the the music done. So if I if I'm in the studio and I I use some combination of gear to get a sound that I need. Once the sound is achieved, I have forgotten that it happened. <laughs> and uh, months later, if somebody asks me, "What did you use to do this?" I will. I have to confess that I have no idea. <laughs> Just, I'm a real, I'm a real bright, shiny object kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's probably a good approach to take. Just something you mentioned there. I mean, say on that tour, you know, Frank was in his own hotel room, as you say, and everything was separate. Earlier tours, people have talked. You know, other musicians have talked how he'd, he would hang out and sometimes sort of jam with them on an acoustic guitar or something like that did any ever happen on this tour 
Did you ever no. play with them off stage? No. no. The the only playing we ever did was in was in a either rehearsal or or gigging capacity, except for uh, when we were in like my my favorite memory of the whole Zappa's universe process was in the in the very early stages when it was just me and Scott and Mots and Morgan uh, at Joe's Garage rehearsing prior to to flying to New York for the shows and. Uh, and Frank came to visit us while we were while we were practicing, and uh, and we played uh, we played jazz discharge party hats for him, which which he was <laughs> delighted by, and uh, and we played uh, black page number one for him, which he had said at that point was the most accurate rendition he had ever heard, and that oh. was great. Uh, and then we played Inca Rhodes, and 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 he uh, and he grabbed a guitar and and played that with us in this tiny little rehearsal room, and it it, it felt much more intimate than than anything else that that we had done and so that that i have a, a, a real fond recollection of and then the other thing that was fun was was uh for his birthday one year uh i went into the, the studio with him and i played his uh guitar solo from sleep dirt on the synclavier so that he could uh he could uh, reorchestrate it and i played the i played the ostinato and then i played the solo over it and he uh and he sort of like Produced me on the spot with it for a couple of the phrases, you know, su- suggested altering the the, the phrasing uh, in little ways. But eventually, we got a nice synclavier recording of of the entire solo. And the next time I went over there a couple of weeks later, he had orchestrated the whole thing. That is sitting in the archives somewhere, and a, a nice little you know uh, synclavier sleep dirt arrangement. That was a fun little kind of intimate moment as well. Oh, that sounds very special. We need to get Mr. Travis looking for that. Uh, I've already asked him to look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and actually, Mike, with uh, with the vault and with uh, the changing of the guard, what do you think as as a you know obviously a Zappa alumni, but as a, a Zappa fan? What what's your you know your golden carrot your golden ticket out there as far as the vault and knowing Joe so well what is what are you looking forward to the most? That's that's an interesting question. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm, it's it's hard for me to, to express because what what excites me are are things that I had no idea existed. <laughs> you know, like uh, I think that there's such a, 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 a there's so many treasures just on on disc three of Meat Light. Yes. Uh, you know, it's, it's like finding, you know, just finding out from, from Joe that these things even existed. That's what excites me. I mean, it's a general answer to your question, but, but what, what, rather than saying that I, I, I guess I, I, I'm more, I'm generally more excited about studio stuff than live stuff because mm-hmm. the, uh, the live stuff is, is, is out there, you know, in, in recordings of so many forms that there are, and there aren't too many. I mean, I'm, I mean, I've been bugging Joe forever for uh, a Bongo Fury tour release because I'm I'm waiting for that really good live recording of uh, what call it Portuguese Lunar yeah. Landing, yep. which is was insane because you know during the the very brief period of time that I was working as Vaultmeister, the main thing that I was working on was that um, FZ plays the music of FZ. Mm-hmm. And we were looking for earliest recorded versions of, of various things, and so and in, in that process, I was listening to every recording from the Bongo Fury tour, and it wasn't until the very last show that we found 
that we heard any rendition of Portuguese Lunar Landing. It's like they, as, I don't know if they played it more than once on that tour, but I know that listening to all the tapes that we had from the tour, I only heard one rendition. And it was incredibly well performed. And that's an interesting tour. Some of it's a little ragged around the edges, you know? Yeah. And then, and then all of a sudden, Portuguese Lunar Landing comes on, and it sounds like all they did was rehearse this song <laughs> because, <laughs> because it sounds so together and so tight. And it's like, what the fuck? How, how could they only play this once and have it sound this good? It's, it's like a bizarre anomaly. So you know, and and I took notes that somewhere in the in the archives are like ex- exhaustive notes uh, that I wrote down of every song that we had on tape from that tour. Uh, you know, with with my you know assessment of, of how good it was, and uh, and when Portuguese Lunar Landing is like what? <laughs> you know, what? how could this be? Um, so I'm waiting for that to come out on some kind of an official Bongo Fury tour release. Um, but you know, when I heard that stuff, it's just when I heard the stuff from the Uncle Meat sessions, and or like, uh, how did that get in there from uh, the from the Lumpy Gravy sessions? Uh, yeah, that's that's what excites me. It's just like things from the studio, from sessions that like you that we had no idea even occurred. That to me, that's the the, the real true treasure in the vault.
Bongo Fury tour, when you were listening to all the recordings, was there any recordings of Frank? He was trying out a Hagstrom guitar synth on a few gigs, I believe. And I heard he hated it, and it didn't work. It was a strange thing that he... Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I remember any number of... this. I wasn't aware of that fact. I remember any number of things sounding very weird in those shows. And that that might have been one of the weird-sounding things, you know. I think that there were a few, you know, instances on that on that tour of just like some solo sections that 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 seemed like uh well, i don't want to say interminable but it just kind of like seemed like something was going wrong and, uh, right. and that might have been one of them I, I i i wouldn't stand in court and say for sure that i've heard the hacks yeah. from synth on that tour but that that might explain some of the stranger things i heard on those tapes it was, it was one of those it was a weird thing where you played a note you just you could play it with one hand it just sort of set the pitch by fr- by you fretting the string which made an electric circuit and you could only sort of play legato with it and i think it sort of sounded like a cheesy organ mostly through an octave divider and things but uh yeah, I might have just thought, what's wrong with George if I heard something yeah. like that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all the audience tapes from that tour, most of them are terrible, so I don't remember hearing anything. There are pictures. Did you ever, Mick, did you ever manage to get the um, uh, permission to use the pictures of him using the Hagstrom? No, they got, the guy wanted hundreds and hundreds of dollars because he's got the only picture of Frank with the Hagstrom on that tour. So I thought, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> you should do an artist's rendering. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. <laughs> like a court drawing, yeah. Uh-huh. Just to pick up on something you said earlier, Mike, about how um, when you were rehearsing for Zappa's Universe with Scott and Mattson and Morgan, you mentioned in the uh, Morgan documentary that Frank actually wanted a former six-piece band comprising you guys plus Ray White and and Frank himself. Did, yeah. did have you ever rehearsed with Ray at all? Did you ever play with no, Ray? No, I, I, uh, I mean that that only went as far as him. You know, um, after the last show of the '88 tour, and he in, invited each member of the band in turn to join him in his dressing room. And when I came in, he said, "Well, I want to." That's and he said that I want to do a six-piece band. And he told me who was going to be in it. You know, he's very enamored of, of Monson Morgan after hearing them in, in Stockholm, and he wanted to check my availability. I said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll be there." But uh, you know, he's, uh, his his health took a took a, a turn for the worse after that tour, and it didn't didn't happen. But the only time I've ever even met Ray was was at a uh, at a Zappa Play Zappa show uh, when he was in the band. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I never actually played with him, but that's that's a big uh, what if to think about that band because you know we, he 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 had a, he canceled ten weeks of dates in the U.S. Uh, that that uh, the the twelve piece was booked to do, and uh, and his idea was that he wanted to do this smaller band, which made a lot of sense uh, financially because even though most of those shows we did in 88 were sold out, he still lost a ton of money because the band was so huge. So he was excited, at least momentarily, about this idea of doing a, a smaller group, but nothing came of it. So so those last dates would have been fulfilled by a smaller band, you're saying? That's, that's what he wanted to do. He said, well, you know, we've got these, these 10 more weeks of dates. And uh, I said, yeah. And he said... Well, I'd, I'd I'd like to try to do them with with this smaller group, and he told me exactly those those players. And then I said, okay, I'll I'll, I'll wait for the call, and that call never came. I've asked um, various band members about those dates. No one knows where the date where the uh, gigs were. No one knows of any venue that was booked. 
Yeah, we never I, we never saw an itinerary. We you know there was never a, a specific schedule presented for those dates. Uh, I, I just remember hearing that it was that it was ten weeks of, of further dates in the U.S. Yeah, he said shed dates, so they would have been like your amphitheaters, right? And presumably, you know, covering the the parts of the country that we didn't hit the first time. Yeah, so unfortunately, they weren't going to hold the entire tour in Connecticut, which was a terrible shame and a shock for me. (laughs) 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 That was the only time I got to see the band, Second Night in Hartford. And that was the only time I got to see Frank, because I was on my way to uh, the first Zappa's Universe show at the Ritz when... uh, we got the news that they were that uh, Dweezil and Moon were having that press conference. So, and you know what they were announcing. So that was uh, I was expecting that Frank would be there, but of course he wasn't. So that was the only yeah that was the only opportunity I got to see him. Had you been a fan for a long time before then? You know, I I'd really only been a fan since about '85 because okay I was uh, what thirteen. And I had a friend of mine who was saying, uh, who knew I was into like, you know, Genesis and Pink Floyd, all that kind of stuff. And he said, well, you've got to listen to Zappa. I don't know why he, he just connected that, but he, he said, you got to listen Chester, to Zappa. Chester Thompson, man. Yeah, well, there you go. There's the link. <laughs> and he uh, said, you got to listen to Zappa. You got to listen to Zappa. So finally, um, I got to hear Freak Out. And I just, I said, here's a guy who knows me. <laughs> there you, you know go. I mean? That's and I guess a lot of people who um, are dedicated Zappa fans have that experience, right? Where you connect with him on this other level than you would say, you know, I don't know, Led Zeppelin or something. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, that was certainly that was precisely my experience, and with the same album, it was it was you know it was really? hearing, it was hearing Help I'm a Rock that that really. I mean, I had I had seen the Mother's doing sofa on the dick cavett show when i was uh oh, wow. when i was eight years old or something yeah and that that was a revelation because i i had seen pictures of frank and he scared me you know <laughs> but i was but i was fascinated i would i would go to this record store and look at this this poster of him yeah uh and just wondering what the hell his music could possibly sound like and then you know i figured his music must must sound as scary as he looked and then I, you know, there, here comes the mothers on, I was, you know, this weird little liberal, you know, nine-year-old who would stay up late to watch the Dick Cavett show. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and, and here comes the mothers and they played Sofa, you know, this lilting waltz. And I was, I was astonished that such an ugly band could play such, you know, pretty sounding music. So that, that made an impact on me. But then a couple of months later, the kid across the street said, Hey, I, I have this, you're, you're weird. He basically said, You're super weird. I have this song you need to hear. And I walked over to his house and he played me Help I'm a Rock. And it was like the moment in Wizard of Oz where everything goes Technicolor, you know? Yeah. It all changed for me in that moment. I couldn't believe that that kind of music existed. I was so happy. Did, did you steal his copy of Freak Out? I acquired it in a trade. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember what I traded for it, but I but I did the right thing. How much musical education have you got? Um, quite a bit out of a library and listening to records. But not formal? I had one semester of harmony and theory in a, a junior college. That's right. Chafee Junior College, Ontario, California. Uh, but some of the guys in your group, or guys who've been in your group anyway, have master's degrees and 
Oh, well, yes. We have the world-renowned Ian Underwood with a bachelor's and a master's. We'll take a message and we'll be right back. musical talent. Another side of Frank Zappa and the Madres of Invention.
Yeah. Well, I, I had done the math backwards from from because um, I guess you had told Frank that you had been a fan for 16 years, right? In '88. Uh, that would make you, yeah, what, nine years old, ten years old? Well, it was, uh, I guess it was 87, so, 87. Which, which, which more aligns, because I think it was 71 when I, when I, when I saw the mothers on the, on the TV and, and, uh, and heard that song. Uh, so I would say that in 1971, I, uh, in December I turned 10, so I was nine years old when I, when I first really started listening to Frank. Wow. That's, uh, well, that's got me beat. <laughs> Andrew Andrew was 10, right? You were 10, weren't uh, you? But I was probably about 11 or 12, actually, yeah. <laughs> they didn't come around until I was 14, you know, because that was, that was when it happened. <laughs> <laughs> <When>? <laughs> we only had the Beatles before that. <laughs> so, so who saw them the earliest then, live? Because I didn't see I, them until 88, and I, 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 Scott didn't see them. Speaker speaks his hands down, I think. Yeah, yeah, I saw, yeah, I saw them at the, um, the festival hall shows, the ones that are in... Um, <laughs> Really? On the album with yeah, yeah. You never told yeah, you, me that. Yeah, wow. you win. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's crazy. And I saw him at the Bar Festival in '70, which was the first time he'd been out with the uh, the comedy band. Was but, it, um, did he play on the same day Pink Floyd played Adam Hart Mother? <laughs> yep. Oh, he did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. It was. It was. Everything was happening. I mean, there was an insane lineup on that. Gig. I mean, it was just like every band who was anyone, Jefferson Airplane were there, Santana. I think. I just, it, it was astonishing. Uh-huh. You know, I, I I went I went for a I got bored in the middle of John Bonham's drum solo and went off to get myself a meal and got a curry from a takeaway place and ate it. And you and still back? And yes, that's true. It was. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the the festival hall gig was amazing. I mean, so that that's the one that's sort of. On, on ahead of their time and I absolutely love that band to pieces it oh it's great. amazing it's, it's, it's such a, a unprecedented band you know it's, it's like yeah that, that's kind of what's been blowing my mind listening to uh, Uncle Meat a lot lately because I, yeah. I got I got re-obsessed when Meat Light came out or actually even before Meat Light yeah. came out for years my immediate answer when people said well what's your favorite Zappa album it would be we're only in it for the money because I, I, I heard yeah. that when I was 10 and uh, as much as Help I'm a Rock blew my mind, that one like blew it twice as, as conclusively. Re-listening to Uncle Meat a lot lately, I'm realizing, God, this album has so much in it that I love and is so yeah. groundbreaking. And it's like, yeah. you know, all the, the, the beginnings of Canterbury and, and, and Rock and Opposition are like yeah. all there. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and, it's, and it's so crazy. And it's just this perfect confluence of events. Uh, you know, having the the right kind of studio and a sympathetic engineer, and having yeah. guys guys in the band who can read and and uh, and apparently just like a, a fairly uh, unlimited amount of time to just compose constantly, because that's what's cool about the stuff on yeah. on disc three of Meat Light is that oh, so there was like even more charts that that were that were flying around at the time, yeah, uh, with these you know beautifully rendered recordings, and uh, you know and and there's really nothing else. In the in the Zappa catalog, that that you know, not that he was ever interested in repeating himself, but Uncle Meat is kind of like a one time only, unrepeatable event. You know, that's like such a great, yeah. great thing. Yeah, it's one of the, it's one of the masterworks. I think that that and Roxy, I would say, are the two sort of the two albums I probably like best of all. Nice. Yeah, nice. I, I'll I'll join Mike in saying only money and Uncle Meat, but if somebody 
put a gun to my head, I would probably have to choose Uncle Meat just because there's more of it. <laughs> That's a good reason. <laughs> yeah. But not, not the CD version. Oh, well. Not, uh, not, well not with well, all that stuff in the film. With, I hated that. <laughs> well, you can now with, um, with Meat with Light. Meat yeah. 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 You have the original vinyl, finally. I'm, I'm sounding Well, I've got the original vinyl. But. It's funny you say that, too, because I had some friends that when I was all excited about these releases coming out and sort of pitching it to them, uh, isn't it great that we're getting? Uh, a lot of them kind of rolled their eyes with the Uncle Me because they thought they were going to get a half an hour of soundtrack again. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I I appreciate that 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 meat light is 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 just is focused on the album. You know, it's 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 about the 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 recordings. It's about going back and finding that original analog mix and 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 transferring it beautifully. I just I just think meat light is magnificent, and, and uh, I like the the alternate uh, early version of of Uncle Meat on you know disc two and the beginning of disc three as well. It's just I'm I can't get enough of that stuff. You know what's yeah. interesting, and it, you probably know this, Mike. Um, the, it it is actually somewhat similar to the so-called acetate version of Uncle Meat that we've had for a long time. I don't know if you guys have ever heard it. It, it circulates among fans. It's it's similar, but but that acetate was shorter. Yeah, I don't I don't, I don't I don't. It wasn't like a full two record set. So it's it, it, there's like so many. <laughs> there are so many working versions of all of these things, you know. So it's 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 uh, it's fascinating to try to uh, try to trace the the, the process. Um, but yeah, there are there are similarities, but there are distinctions as well. Now we don't come up here because we feel like walking four or five to three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. We were up here last night. Now for us, yes. For us to continually come up to this here place every night. And not show no action other than saying yes, we're directing the tradition. We look kind of bad. I mean, let's be honest. Now, if you had to give me any kind of recommendation or mark my work, you say, who the hell's kid knows? This guy's a mistake. He's not doing nothing. You mean they grade your work at the office? Well, the idea is like this, Miss. Let, let me tell you something. If every day the captain would go into that damn telephone book and they make a record of this, Every night, three to four, two to four, between those hours, you guys are at 53 East 10th Street. What are you doing there every night? You mean you could you permit this condition to continue on without once giving a summons? All right, your lawyer said to knock it off. I mean, without once giving a summons? Mm. What listen, are we doing listen, here? Uh, we're putting ourselves over backwards with these people. Do you know what we're doing? Do you know what we're doing? All right. Well, this is, if we're up here once, we're up here 20 times. I know that little guy, like uh, the, the guy in here, like a long-lost brother. Now, if we ever get called down, if this ever goes to a big explosion, and they say, officer, what did you do? Did you issue summonses? They got, this is all in the record book, how many times we've been up here. This is all records. Mm -hmm. Now, if these people want to subpoena these records, they can subpoena these records, and they can find out how many times we've been. This is us, oh, wait, this is us alone. And they say, officer, what did you do? Warn them? You mean to tell me you were up here about 20 times and you never issued a summons? That's so all we've done is... Uh, and we what? Yes. There have been summonses. Well, Where? we never issued them. Uh, how many summonses have you gotten for noise? By me personally or the studio? The studio. Studio. I don't know how many, but this... You've gotten one. 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 And how many times have I... Uh, hey, listen. As I say, if I've been up here once, I've been up here 20 times already. Yeah, well... Can I just bring out what? a few points? Yes, you bring out any point you want. I just work here. Right? I know I that. I take my order. Right. Do a session. Right. Do a session. Right. right. Now, I understand you're, you're, uh, 
your annoyance at having to climb the stairs all the time. No, we aren't annoyed at climbing the stairs. We're just being annoyed at pulling back here all the time. You don't want to climb up the stairs. There's nothing well, to us. See, I'm annoyed about not being able to come back here. Right. You want to bun? If I come back here, and every night that I do come back here, I don't care who says he's in charge, I'm going to issue a summons. And I will meet that person in the court. And every time the judge says, officer, did he make? Yes, sir. The lawyer says he's going to meet. And that will be it. And I'm telling you this. Whether it's be you or anyone else in charge, if I got to come up here and hear noise, I will issue a summons. And anybody thinks it's a great joke, we can all laugh in the court. You know what's going to happen. And the lawyer will either have it to a head or he'll lose the whole case. It's going to be next door. You know what I'm talking about? Then yeah. it's going to be somebody next door. Really? Well, this this is, you guys are defeating your own purpose. Nah. Well, they're reasonably trying to soundproof the place. Too. I realize that. Listen, why can't these sessions take place at 1 o'clock in the afternoon? Because, because there are other sessions taking place at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, then you guys better make different arrangements or build well, something it's impossible. You know, it's really different. What do you fight the low ground? Let's play New York. What the fuck? As I say, you know, it is a nice weed this is like you trying to tell your boss that you've been cutting the record for four months and you didn't do nothing. He wouldn't keep you too long. Not too long. No. Uh, uh, I say, they want to make it. They just subpoena them records and find out how many times we've been up there. Well, I've changed the subject drastically now. With the recent sad news uh, about Nigel Lennon passing away, I just wondered what memories you had of recording with her, especially um, It's Just a Black Guitar. Do you remember that at all? 
um, it, those, that was a very very uh, pleasurable uh, recording session. It was uh, I, my my primary uh, recollection was, was was of her and uh, and John Tobacco really having to uh, to cajole me into doing a, a, a Johnny Cash impersonation in the in the studio. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But it was it was you know I, I, I my recollection of it was that of, of it just being ex- extremely relaxed and laughing the entire time and uh, you know this this uh, I, I seem to recall there was incense burning in the studio and and tapestries on the wall and it felt just very much like a a, a hippie environment and I felt very comfortable there. And yeah, I was, that'd, be, I was, that'd be Niger, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was very uh, I was yeah I'm very sad to to read about Niger. Yeah, she was definitely. She's been on our show a couple times. She's, uh, mm. yeah, she's a good friend of mine. I, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, we'll definitely miss her. Yeah, I, uh, you know, her stuff's on Spotify, boys and girls. For those of you who haven't heard any of her uh, music, it is on Spotify. So, um, you know, feel free to uh, to uh, get yourself some because there was a lot of um, anti Nige stuff on the uh on the internet after she passed and uh people were being negative on the internet scott oh yeah <laughs> yeah i know really can't believe it <laughs> well see, see the thing is mike you live in the bubble because everybody loves you <laughs> <laughs> well the ones who don't are very active on the internet oh <laughs> <laughs> no i just i just don't you know well i guess that i guess that just sums it up then right you're just haters gonna hate, man. Well, I mean that does sum it up. People, it just I, people seem to find it therapeutic to just spin out a negative shit. You know, I I, I don't get it. <laughs> and that's why we elected an internet troll as our president. <laughs> man, man. I still I still like to believe that the that the species is evolving, but you know, evolution is a very complicated process. Uh, that's it. I keep saying we've got to keep our eyes on the prize. It's not. A, it's you, only four I, years. <laughs> this is this yeah. is really going to make me uh, sound like a luddite, but I mm. I do think that the that the internet as a as a tool <laughs> as uh, has encouraged the worst tendencies in a lot of people, and it's a shame. Oh, I agree. I absolutely yeah. agree. Because you, you know anybody can be a what they, a keyboard warrior or whatever they call them. Like you can just. You know, pick a fight with anybody because you don't have to worry about them punching you in the face. So. Yeah, we need to develop the technology so that people do automatically get hit when they uh, <laughs> when they insult somebody. I mean, uh, <laughs> just a, a, a fist reaches out of your computer screen. And worship at the 
sell He's working for the company And he'll send you straight to hell With just five pounds of plastic With a finish painted black Six strings of bridge and Francis Dunnery has just completed a tour of fans' houses around Europe. I wonder how likely are you to resume your Mike Keneally living room performances with Mr. Butter and when you come in to play the UK again? <laughs> um, it's interesting uh, you should mention Francis Dunnery because I, I, we just played a place uh, called Kennet Flash and, uh, and he had been there the night before us and when we, when we came in to set up they were playing his show from the night before over the PA and it, it oh. sounded absolutely unbelievable. He's like... In, in, He's in incredibly good form these days, um, and, uh, uh, and as, so you're asking about the possibility of doing uh, house concerts in the UK with Brian Beller. That <laughs> that is uh, has, it, it hasn't come up, but it it, it would be uh, an interesting and, and relatively uh, cost conscious way to get over there and do some playing. My door's, my door's open. Ah, thank you, <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, we. Uh, right now, I am talking about uh, doing some stuff, uh, returning to, to Germany next summer with the with Jan Vestman and Schroeder, who I, I, I played with uh, earlier this year. Uh, originally, we were Mike Keneally and friends back in the early aughts, 
and we played at uh, at Zappenal, and we played a, a bunch of places in, in Germany, and then we didn't play together for like fourteen years or something, and 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 then this year we we reconvened, and uh, and I found that I really missed playing with 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 Jan and Schroeder. It's a very different vibe to when I play with uh, with Brian and Joe. It's a uh, it's uh, a a little mellower. It's a, a little more hippy dippy, I guess. Um, but it's a it, it it makes me play differently, and that's something that that intrigues me. Or like different contexts that bring different things out of me, uh, and it's also obviously very cost effective. The fact that they're already in in Europe when I when I come over there. Uh, so uh, if when I return to Germany in the summer I'll, I'll, uh, of next year, I'll be doing some more performances with with Jan and Schroeder. Um, but I very dearly want to bring my band, uh, you know, Beer for Dolphins, back uh, over there. And if it's possible to do more stuff in the UK, because last time we played there was in 2013, I think, when, when God Sticks were opening, uh, which I, I guess was the last time I saw you, Andrew. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I can't say uh, with absolute certainty when the next time will be, but I will say with certainty that there will be a next time. Can, can can I uh, hire you to play in the living room sometime, Mike? <laughs> I, I listen. My my ears are open. I enjoy working. So you know, all these all these things are possible. Well, you know me. You know, like I'll, I'll just get millionaire money, and you know, because that of you know, like having you on the show is probably the closest we've ever come to having the Beatles on the show. So that's <laughs> <laughs> that's a new one. I, I haven't heard that one before. I don't. Well, thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Joe notwithstanding, you know, but <laughs> Joe's the, Joe is the fifth Beatle. Joe is the fifth Beatle. Yes. One, one of my questions actually was: um, this is the question, Rubber Soul or Revolver? Ah, um, Rubber Soul. Then. And and I and I have to say specifically U.S. Rubber Soul, because ah. <laughs> to me, I think that album is supposed to start with "I've just seen I've the just face." Seen the face. Yep. <laughs> but so, you, you know, know, understand that's my that's my conditioning. But I honestly do think that that Rubber Soul, as it as it got uh, butchered and recontextualized in the U.S., kind of makes more sense as an album uh, because it's more acoustic. And I think that's the, the the thing that kind of I find enchanting about that record. It sort of sounds like the Beatles just sitting around on the floor playing acoustic guitars with just a a a, a, a pile of really amazing songs. Uh, and when I think of, of drive my car uh, in you know in that company, it just it feels anachronistic somehow. Even though I know that's the way the album is supposed to go, and that's the way the Beatles intended it. Uh, even as a, a huge Beatle fan, I can't ignore my heart when I say that my favorite collection of Beatle music is is the U.S. version of Rubber Soul. Yeah, I uh, you know I mean as a, a Beatles fan going back to the '70s anyway, I. You know, I kind of have to agree with that. I mean, that's what we all grew up on. So, it wasn't until I started reading books about the Beatles that I realized that there were other versions of those albums. So, you know, but that's but of course that U.S. version is also the version that influenced Brian Wilson to create Pet Sounds. So that is true. That's true. But I mean, it's 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 a completely you know I have no uh, objectivity about it. It's just it's, I just love that album so much. Should I say she once had me? She showed me the 
version of uh, Freak Out and then found out that originally in, in America it was a double album we had only about two thirds of the album I, 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 would, I would have been bitter also yeah that's, that's yeah. at least your sides were longer yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, were, yeah. yeah they were longer but <laughs> the album didn't sound that great did it no no oh yeah I, mean, yeah I guess there was some seriously crammed grooves growing up going oh, on big there big time big yeah. time you know what I wanted to ask you about, Mike, too? And I'm interrupting Andrew one more time. You were um, a reader of uh, Mother People fanzine, right? And, yeah. And, of course, Society Pages came after you were in the band. Um, when did you start, like, getting involved in that end of the, of the, you know, what the fans were doing, you know? Like, when did you hook up with Rob Serretta? I think uh, I, I probably found out about Mother People... Jeez, I, uh, I can't remember what exactly how it was brought to my attention. Mm. Yeah, or or even when. Uh, like I'm, I'm trying to remember. Was it was it before the '84 tour? Was it after the '84 tour? I just remember that when I found out that it existed, I gathered up as many of the back issues as I could, and that that kind of screws up the chronology in my memory. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> uh, to me, it just became like a, a one huge lump of of years of issues. Um, but it, it was, you know, when did that when did that start publishing? Was the early eighties, eighty one. Oh yeah, well, I, I'm sure I didn't find out about it until, for the sake of argument, let's say uh, eighty four. Okay. And and it, it might have even been as a result of some information that I obtained around the time of the eighty four tour. Uh, it was just you know the, the, obviously information spread more slowly in those days I, and I would love to retrace the, the the steps that led to me finding out that that thing existed but anyway I found out that it existed sometime around 84 
and then read it with great uh, fervor, you know, in the, in the years to come. And then in 88, when we were on the road, you know, I met Rob at a show, and apparently I was not... Uh, I, I was not as forthcoming with him as as, as he wanted. I, I might have been too protective with some information, because uh, uh, in the next issue, he he gave like his thumbnail, uh, a personality uh, profile of everybody in the band, and he referred to me as the most paranoid member of the band. Uh, uh, and then in, in parentheses, it, he said, "Of what we don't know." Uh, and I, and I ended up writing a song called The Most Paranoid of What We Don't Know, because I thought that was actually like an, an intriguing phrase. Um, and, and, I remember, and I was like, I, and I wrote to Rob and I said, what? Uh, wow, I, I didn't realize that I was like uh, withholding information from you. I'm sorry. Uh, and, and I, you know, I think our, our relationship warmed up slightly at that point. But let me put it this way. I, I was very young. And I was still like trying to feel my way through what was and wasn't okay with Frank, mm-hmm. and uh, and I knew that obviously a big deal with him was bootlegs, and I also knew that Mother People was, was like open, openly involved in that world. And I was put to the test on the very uh, the very first day of rehearsal with with Frank, you know, after I I passed the audition, and then and then I was in in you know in the rehearsal studio with the band for the first time. It was before the horns were there. So it was a smaller group, but uh, you know, I'd already like passed the test with Frank, but the real test was Scott. You know, I had I had to uh, make sure that I passed muster with Scott, and Scott like just looked at me with utter disdain, like, "What? Who is this kid? What are you doing here? What the hell is going on?" And and uh, you know, he he was he skateboarded into the to the rehearsal room, which was the, you know the size of a football field, and so I'm like, I'm over there trying to set up my gear. And I'm barely a guitar player at the time. I was like, I was, I was primarily a keyboardist. I played guitar for fun, and then all of a sudden, I'm playing guitar in, in Frank Zappa's band, and that was the, uh, that in itself was plenty for me to try to wrap my head around. And then Scott comes skateboarding into the room, and he he sees me, and he skateboards up to me, and I said, "Hi, Scott. I'm really pleased to meet you. And my name is Mike Kennelly. It's really a pleasure. I love your work." And he says, "Thank you. What are you doing here?" <laughs> <laughs> That was actually a very good tunist too. <laughs> and I said, "Well, I, uh, I'm uh, I'm playing guitar and, and keyboard in the band now. I just, I, you know, I just auditioned for Frank, and he hired me. And he goes, oh, Jesus!' And he and he uh, and you know, he skateboards away. And then he comes skateboarding back, and he says, "Play to Mercy Duin." And this is, uh, you know, late 1987. Tamersha Duin hasn't been officially released yet. <laughs> I knew it from bootlegs. Yep. Do what? So the, the the gears are turning in my brain. Do I, you know, do I surrender this information? Do I let him know that I that I know this song? As do I immediately get turned over to the bootleg police because I know <laughs> this song? Or am or do I, you know, do I trumpet my knowledge of, of Frank's music and say yes, I do know that song. I've never played it, but I but I do know it. So you know, he was asking me if I knew how to play it, and I had never played it before. So I was able to say with with a hundred percent accuracy, no. And he and he just kind of like went, you know, he sort of did a did a basil faulty kind of poof, and uh, and uh, and skateboarded away again, and then unplugged. I I, I started picking out the melody of Tamersi Duin. And he was about 150 yards away, and he, and he screams. He hears me playing it unplugged, and he goes, "You know it!" And he and he skateboards back. <laughs> and he starts quickly calling out fret positions: first string, seventh fret; first string, eighth fret; first 
string tenth fret first day you know just like telling me you know the note where the notes are you know exist on the fretboard and he talked me through the the whole melody that way and uh and so i learned then that i i wasn't going to lose points for admitting that i knew unreleased frank zappa songs and then later in the rehearsal process frank called brought my face to chicago which also hadn't come out yet mm-hmm. and uh and so i'm like am i gonna am i gonna stand here and lie that i don't know the song or you know and and like waste frank's money you know making believe that he has to teach me the song no i'll just play it and uh I think there may have been one moment of a slightly raised eyebrow when, when he realized that I knew the song, but you know, he quickly moved past that. But anyway, that was a very that was a lengthy tangent. Uh, but but I think that probably I was I was being overcautious uh, with Rob Serretta because of uh, you know I just didn't I was brand new to the Zappa world. I didn't know what was allowed, what wasn't allowed. I was brand new to the world of professional music. That was my first professional gig. Yeah, which which in itself is like. Uh, unbelievable so i was i was a puppy in the world you know <laughs> yeah and it, it's funny because mother people only lasted about another issue and then it was uh i guess um you know he got well i had not, i had nothing to do with that that's <laughs> i don't know you sounded a little paranoid there <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about <laughs> and then 1988 no. was when Tamashi Dween started in the UK. Was that was that that same time? Yeah, because we had Society Pages over here, which was um, Dan Sims and Samler and Buxton, I think. Yeah. Does anyone know anything of of what became of Rob Serretta after that? I do. He's in Florida. Cool. He's in Florida, and he still has a Mother People website, and he's still selling back issues of Mother People, because what I wanted to do was I wanted to take all those old issues of Mother People, um, blow them up to, I don't know, 8 by 11 or something like that, and I wanted to make a bigger book out of them. I wanted to blow them up because I'm getting old and I can't see like I used to. So <laughs> Yeah, some small print. Actually, somebody gave me a, a, some back issues on the tour that I just did. Yeah? Uh, yeah. Uh, who was it? Uh... I think it was Ron Casapula. I don't know if you know him. Oh yeah, I did. Uh, yep. Sure yeah. I th- I, 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 apologies if it wasn't him to whoever did give me those issues, but somebody. Uh, no, maybe it was uh, Angelo. Uh, anyway, uh, Donato. I think it was Donato. Uh, I don't oh, remember. Yeah. Anyway, a, a, a good friend of mine gave me some back issues <laughs> of other people, which I hadn't looked at in years, and that was the first thing I noticed when I opened it up. Was holy fuck, this is hard to read. <laughs> <laughs> I keep saying, boy, I would love to read this, but <laughs> it's just ridiculous. So I wanted to do it, and then I found out that Rob was reluctant to do it because he still had back issues he wanted to sell. So, ah, okay. so that's what happened. It's not like um, society pages where those people just disappeared off the face of the planet. <laughs> well, I, I actually, I, I'm I'm in uh, reasonably uh, frequent contact with with Rob Samler, so he has he has oh, not true. disappeared. He's he's in he's in Hong Kong. <laughs> I spoke to Den Sims when I was writing my book. Oh, really? Yeah, I had one phone call with him, uh, and then when I tried to, he gave me an email address, and when I wrote to him, uh, I think I got an undeliverable message or something, so I've never, never been in touch with him again. I lost the phone number, oh, but you did you did manage to to. Uh, to confirm his his continued existence, that's good. Absolutely, yeah. That's great. <laughs> so this was, uh, yeah, um, five, six years ago. That's well, good. The way that, um, uh, who was it that was telling us this? Oh, maybe it was Matthew Gallagher was saying that after Frank passed away, um, 
you know, he just kind of lost a lot of his, you know, he lost heart, as you can understand. So, sure. uh, you know, it is, it is what it is. But that, that um, society page has turned me on to the beginning of your, um, I guess you'd call it professional solo career, you know, post, post-cassette era. Oh, that's, I'm, I'm glad that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, did you want to uh, ask more questions? I've, I've got more, if you, if you Do you, have, do you yeah. have more time, Mike? Can, yeah, <laughs> continue dealing from the stack. <laughs> okay, I mean, obviously, uh, they, get, they get more controversial if you go under. Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you have any idea? I might, I might, I might be, uh, start to become more paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> of what we don't know. <laughs> have you any idea why the names Bingjang and Arkansas were applied to you and Mr. Bella? Um, those were the, the names of actual uh, dogs that that were that were in the uh, the, the Zappa house at the time. Oh, right, so yeah. that's that's that that is where those names came from. Okay. <laughs> oh. um, I recently asked Weasel uh, what the chances of you two working together again were. He said probably not anything happening anytime soon. Do you think it's ever going to happen? Is that ever likely to be a possibility? Not if that uh, continues to be his position on the topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was before he invited Ike Willis to, to uh, play with him. <laughs> well, um, I, we, we, we are tre- treading onto controversial territory here. Uh, okay. let, let me just say this as, a, as an all-encompassing thing. I love and respect all the Zappa children, and I'm really very sad <laughs> about what's what's happening between them. And, uh, and as you know, I I worked with, with with Dweezil briefly at the very beginning of the Zappa plays Zappa thing. He actually uh, asked me to come up to the house to to show him some stuff when he was in the pro, you know in the early processes of learning things like Inca Rose and the Black Page and whatnot. And he rec- he recorded me playing some of that stuff uh, in some software that slowed down and and uh, and uh, and you know begin to practice those songs. And I think that he has done Dweezil's done an incredible job. Of uh, of you know sort of morphing his guitar technique in a way uh, to to be able to execute these things. Uh, so and at that time, Dweezil did say, you know, I, I I would like to have you as a special guest with, with Zappa Play Zappa, and I'm like, sure, you know, uh, give me a call. And I've seen him a bunch of times since I've gone to Zappa Play Zappa shows, and the invitation hasn't been forthcoming. Whatever his reasons are for that are are totally his reasons, and and I respect them entirely. And I don't, uh, I'm I'm not in any way trying to talk my way onto that stage, you know. Even uh, even though I'm I'm friends with everybody in his band and everything, and you know, and things uh, have probably gotten a little more complex due to the fact that I'm you know working so closely with with Joe Travers, and and Joe is working so closely with Amit. Uh, so it, it's it's overall this very unfortunate kind of you know political tangled web that has been woven. I I would would happily do anything with any of the Zappa kids at at any time they wanted to do it, and that's my official position on that. Are you, are you likely to feature in Alex Winter's Zappa movie? I have no idea. Uh, I haven't I haven't been contacted about that, but if if elected, I will serve. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you ever been approached by uh, to play with the band from Utopia at all? Any contact with those guys? Um, I have. I've I've I've, I've spoken to uh, to Robert uh, a couple of times, and he's he's been uh, he's been. Uh, 
somewhat diligent uh, about uh, inviting me to, to, to play, and it just it, it has, has never worked out for you know any number of reasons. But uh, you know, I love all those guys too. Yeah, that'll be a chance to play with Ray White. That's right. Um, any insights into the likelihood of any more material from '88 being released? Maybe the Madrid concert on DVD. Any idea? Um, I, I think uh, I, I, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to release any uh, information out of school there. I think that that is that's that's Joe Travers' uh, 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 territory if he wants to reveal anything about that. But I I I know that he has enthusiasm about about putting out a, a 1988 release of some kind, yeah. uh, and uh, I would be delighted to, to have another look at that material, uh, you know, or have a, have another version of something from that tour available for people to check out because I think that those all those albums that came out then have a you know, have a very specific mixing style uh, that yeah. was in keeping with with Frank's proclivities at the time and uh, and I would I would be delighted given the you know really stellar sonic quality of, of things that have been coming out from the from the ZFT lately uh, for a, a newly mixed version because uh, the, the guy that Joe's been working with uh, Craig Adams on on new mixes of things He's doing such a good job. The stuff just sounds very natural, and it really breathes, and it's it's very full, and there's just nothing missing. And uh, you know, if uh, I would love for Craig to get his hands on some '88 recordings, and I definitely would be delighted if if, if Madrid uh, uh, got some kind of video release because I think that was such a, a much better show than than Barcelona. Yeah. Uh, so that would be uh, that would be sweet. But I, I I don't have any inside information about whether there's any kind of uh, release uh, schedule for a Madrid video. No, I'm sure on uh, GZ says at some point that was uh, 88 stuff was definitely mentioned as a as a, a line. Yeah, uh, and, and again, you probably know about as much as, as I do. <laughs> but uh, I know that that there's enthusiasm on on Joe's part, and that is a very good sign. Yeah. What was it about Madrid that made it a better show? Do you remember? I think that it's, it, there's there's something that that tends to happen when there's when there's a, a, a you know it's like Madrid was being filmed, but it didn't seem like it would, because Barcelona was a live TV broadcast, right? Yeah. Okay, so automatically there's that energy that gets introduced into the into the, the proceedings, and uh, and my recollection of Madrid, which I haven't heard since we played the show, was that it was a more interesting set list. Like it was, I, I think that there was there was a greater variety of, of, of stuff, more unusual instrumental material, uh, and and that I I just seem to recall that having a better flow from start to finish. It just it, it, in in my recollection, it was like that was a really good one. I remember when it was done, that was a really good one, yeah. and I remember not feeling that way about about Barcelona. I remember thinking that it got too. You know, it, it, it got too involved with the the whole raffle secret word thing, yeah. and the, the, to the point where it seemed like it was uh, interrupting the flow of things in a way. Uh, and I didn't think it was as interesting a set list as as this, as the show that we did in Madrid, which I don't recall right now offhand exactly what we played in Madrid. But to me, it was a more personally, it was a, it was a more musically satisfying uh, mix of material. So that that's you know, I, it just seemed like. Madrid was a more was a more badass show uh, in terms of the the songs and the performances, which is about all you want. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm actually looking up that set list right now. I know you played Cruising for Burgers at that show. 
which was my favorite song to play with Frank. So was maybe it? that, uh, yeah, that was, that was number one. I, I loved playing that song, and I actually loved the version that's on Make a Jazz Noise, and uh, and I think that yeah, I mean that in and of itself would 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 uh, put that show up a little higher in my estimation. That's something we would uh, like to get. Of course, all that stuff is going to be transferred anyway to digital once uh, the uh, restoration bit from the Kickstarter gets that far. Did you contribute mm-hmm. to the Kickstarter? I did not. Ah. Yeah. You, you gave it the office? <laughs> <laughs> I contributed spiritually. <laughs> so, so if any of you out there are disappointed with the results of the Kickstarter, it is not the fault of Mr. Keneally. <laughs> <laughs> Don't blame I, uh, him. He didn't vote for it. It's 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 not that I you know I, it's not that I set a policy of not contributing to the Kickstarter. It's just that I, I I think I was uh, I think I was just distracted. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know how that is around here. Trust me. <laughs> not, not a controversial thing, isn't it? Just I want to ask about your daughter, uh, who occasionally uh, sings guest vocals on your albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, how she and what else does she do? Is she she was a, I thought she was a designer or something or an artist. Um, well, she was uh, she was as trained uh, as a, an illustrator and animator. She uh, you know she uh, went to San Jose University for a couple of years and working in those disciplines. But right now she is. Uh, She's doing a uh, you know more of a, a standard type paying gig uh, where she's uh, you know working uh, for a placement agency. She she interviews applicants who are looking for employment, uh, and uh, so she's gainfully employed. She's got uh, an, an honest to god job, <laughs> but but when whenever possible, I uh, I I. Uh, I love having her sing on my records. Uh, she's got such a pure voice, and uh, you know, and it's always fun to work with her. Obviously, but uh, she is doing great. Thank you for asking after her. In 2013, you resumed your Mike Type Studio blog on your website. Since when you've done nothing? What the fuck? <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's uh, you know, it's a combination of uh, of uh, being very busy <laughs> and. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I, th- I I I don't want to get too deep into my emotional issues, but just know that they're there. <laughs> <laughs>
one, one, one thing you mentioned earlier about um, the uh, uh, Zappa uh, Memorial CD thing, you know, it's called now, uh, um, you, you were credited on there as preliminary research. Were you ever actually anointed Vaultmeister formally by Gail? Yeah, for, uh, for a few months. It, uh, that was uh, that was my uh, my position there. But then, but then that when uh, when the great purge occurred, that was the end of that. <laughs> you man, it well, yeah. I mean, you physically survived the purge, which is you know more than uh, I guess more than some can say. You will not. Well, hmm. it was it, that was you know. It, it, that was something, eh, you know, when because I was, you know, I was working in Dweezil's band, and then I was I was working in the vault at the same time, and so when things went south uh, with Z, then the you know the vaultmeister position obviously uh, was was also uh, rendered inoperative. <laughs> I'm just I'm just grateful that that uh, that Joe was there to uh, to pick up the slack and to do it in such magnificent fashion. Yeah, it's true. He has done uh, an amazing job, and you know, I think you know for all for all our listeners out there who think they can do it better than Joe Travers, you can't. So there you go. <laughs> eat, eat chain, as they say. That's right. Eat chain. <laughs> I know it's unlikely we'll ever see a five piano reductions volume two, but did you ever actually record any more of Steve's songs? I arranged uh, three of them, uh, of which two of them I was really happy with. And and I, that that first one was 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 really really difficult. It was the hardest album I've ever I've ever worked on, with the possible exception of Scambot Two, which took a long time. Uh, but the uh, just the whole the, the the whole discipline of of boiling those songs down to just solo piano and coming up with arrangements that I was happy with, and then performances that I was happy with, and that that Steve then was happy with. Because I was recording multiple versions down in San Diego, bringing the tapes up to, to Steve, and then Steve would transfer them. I was, was recording analog. He would transfer the tapes to digital and then edit together his ideal versions from all the different renditions that I was giving him. Uh, but the but coming up with the arrangements and doing the performances was like really a sweating blood uh, process for me. I'm really happy with the album the way it turned out. But it was definitely not cost effective, and when when he proposed the second volume, and I said okay, and then he gave me his list, and it was like a lot of really really insane stuff, and and the the two that I was happy with that I worked on, one is for a song called Ooh, and then another one is the song uh, Under It All, and uh, and I worked for months on arrangements for those two before I was happy with them, and then. It, it's not only do you have to know the arrangement, you have to be able to execute it. And uh, and I, I I never went into the studio with them, but you'll find on YouTube renditions of me playing those uh, at a at a Vi festival from uh, Groningen uh, at the Osterport in 2010. Uh, so I, I I went. You know, Steve was there and. And a, a bunch of other people were there, and and he was premiering some orchestral material, and I went and did a performance of of the piano reductions, some stuff from the first album, and then the premiere of stuff that was supposed to be volume two. So if you want to hear what those arrangements sound like, you can find them on YouTube of of Ooh and Under It All and uh, 
also I did one for the, the piece San Sebastian, but I was never really fully satisfied with that one. I kind of I kind of whipped that one out real quickly in order to perform it at the festival, and so I did that. And then several more years went by, and I found that between my my own projects and Satriani touring and Death Clock touring and all this stuff, there just wasn't time. And it it, it really takes me months of of just of hair tearing out work which explains my hairline now uh, 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 to, to get those arrangements to a point where I was satisfied and I finally you know a couple of years ago went to Steve and said Steve you're seriously going to be waiting forever for me to, to do this so there's not necessarily that doesn't necessarily put the uh, put the brakes on the idea of a piano reductions volume two because I actually was contacted by a, a, a Japanese uh, pianist I can't remember her name but she was magnificent, and she she actually sent me a video of her playing some of, of Steve's stuff, and I kind of and I kind of went hmm, and and I said Steve, do you know about this girl? And and he did know about her, and I said, you know what? There's there's no there's no rule saying you can't do a volume two with another piano player. So someday there might be a volume two, but I, it won't be me <laughs> unless I go into the studio, which I might do someday. I would like to get a really nice recordings of at least these two uh ooh and under it all which together are like you know 18 minutes of music so there's an ep uh and uh you know because i did work very hard on those arrangements but at least they're out there on youtube yeah so so now if somebody wants to um book you to or hire you to do something for them you are now currently booked well into the next life then would that be a fair way to put it um, it's, right, right now I'm seeing things up until about August of next year and then after that it, it, be, it begins to look a little clear although I, I do want to book more uh, uh, Beer for Dolphins touring and I have, I have no idea what uh, what uh, Satriani is intending to do after we finish this cycle Yeah, and I, and I, I was just in the studio with the band Mastodon and, and recording some recording some keyboards on their new record and they had said that they were interested in, in possibly doing some touring with them on keyboards and, and third guitar and I really like Mastodon so that would be fun to do uh, so I'm you know I'm looking at, again at a, at a a pretty busy year starting uh, to, to build up next year but uh, there's time if you need me to come play in your living room we, could, we can carve out a weekend Dude, I am so in, you have no idea.
And that's our show, folks. But before we go, I'd like to give you the rundown of some of the material you heard in this particular episode. Most of these selections are from various Mike Keneally solo albums. We heard Race the Stars from the Scambot 2 album, 1988 in Hell from Half Alive in Hollywood, We're Rocking All Night with the Tangy Flavor of Cheddar from Hat, Pig from the Steve Vai Piano Reductions album, Pretty Enough for Girls from Dancing, Egg Zooming from Sluggo, Taster also from Dancing, It's Just a Black Guitar by Nigel Lennon from her album Reinventing the Wheel, and of course we heard the String Quartet from the Meat Light Project Object album now available at your local retailer. Get it now, kids. That's our show. Thank you very much for listening. The ZappaCast was produced and edited by Scott Parker, Andrew Greenway, Mick Eakers, and Scott Fisher. Be sure to check out Andrew's website at www.idiotbastard.com for all the latest Zappa news, and also to purchase Andrew's book, Zappa the Hard Way, the definitive account of the 1988 Frank Zappa Broadway The Hard Way Tour. For those of you interested in obtaining my Zappa books, my website is located at www.spbpublishing.webs.com, and if you order the books directly from me, I'll sign them for you. My books are also available from www.gnsmusic.com, purveyors of the finest Zappa merchandise anywhere, as well as www.amazon.com and many other right-thinking booksellers. And you should also check out Mick Eaker's excellent site on Frank's Gear at www.zappasgear.com. And for more information about Scott Fisher, you can go to fishersflicker.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R-S-F-L-I-C-K-E. Com. Scott is a very wonderful musician and songwriter, and you can check out some of his music at that website. If you wish to contact us, drop us a line at MOI1969, that's 1969, at SNET.net. On behalf of Andrew Greenaway, Mick Eakers, and Scott Fisher, this is Scott Parker saying thank you again for listening. And until next time, good night, boys and girls. Thanks a lot. Good night. We could, uh, you know, you you can uh, can you harmonize on Everly Brothers tunes too? <laughs> Devoted. Oh. To do, you, do you want the the top or do you want the the, the, the bottom? Oh, that's, sorry, that's a, pers- that's a personal question. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll learn it though. <laughs> is this is this um, is, by the way is this way too rambling for you or is this? good this whole uh, what this interview yeah uh, this, I, I i enjoy a good ramble but uh we uh we probably ought to uh tie it up soonish because i'm supposed to be helping my girlfriend clean the place for thanksgiving <laughs> oh yeah huh yeah you might want to do that yeah <laughs> <laughs> we have nothing to be thankful for in america but we're having it anyway <laughs> oh man I can't. I can't even fucking believe it. I know. I know. I'm. I'm trying really hard to be positive. I guess. 
but you know, I've been allowing myself to be uh, catatonic uh, about it for a couple of weeks before. Uh, you know, who's inspiring me is my daughter. She like in- instantly just like snapped into progressive activism mode. Yeah. So I'm 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 I'm, I'm, I'm trying to like. Uh, Look at what I can do, uh, you know, in a positive sense, other than just, uh, you know, lie in bed and shaking my head, going, "You can't fucking be serious." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll share something with you in in my sort of alternative interest in politics that came out of all the crap that's happening in England over here as well. Right. Um, I heard Ed Miliband, the former Labour leader who tried to get elected a couple of years back. Talking about talking about Trump, and he said everyone's feeling very gloomy and depressed. But you've just got to remember, he says it's on us to stay on the pitch and keep fighting. That's right. Yes, absolutely true. That is exactly um, right. And I, I, you know, I keep telling my because uh, I have friends who are in the so-called alt-right, or or as we probably know them better now as Nazis. Nazis, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, um, very, very alt. Very alt, yeah. The, what did Stephen Colbert say? He said, think of what... It, all right, the way you think of the alt-right is, think of what you know is right, and then think of an alternative to that. And, <laughs> and that's the alt-right. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I know some of these guys, and they are fucking Nazis, to be honest with you. You know, mm-hmm. but when I say Trump, that... Trump is actually... Huh? I was going to say, Trump, Trump, Trump has disowned those, hasn't he, today? I, well, yeah, that's what I see on the crawl on, on CNN. But yeah, he said, of course I condemn them. But, you know, yeah. to me that means about as much as anything else he says. Exactly. You know? Well, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. What would Frank have them, thought of anyway. all this? I don't know. But, you know, I... Let's, let's just, I mean, here's what I see as the silver lining. Yeah. I, I think that, to a certain degree, the, the progressive left uh, has become complacent in this country. Um, they were they were they were unwilling to uh, hold uh, Obama's uh, feet to the fire in, in terms of some of the you know serious uh, shit that has been going on. You know, a lot of innocent people being drone bombed and the Guantanamo Bay. You know, you know this. this you know, because Obama's just so darn likable, and and everybody wanted to you know hold on to this uh, you know this this hope that he represented, and and there can be no doubt that that Clinton you know, represented a uh, a continuation of the status quo in that regard, and and I'm I'm not a person who spends a lot of time of, you know, placing blame because I think it's pointless, but I I, I do think that that the DNC's blackballing of Bernie Sanders is kind of what brought us to this point. I think that there's every likelihood that Bernie Sanders would have uh, would have would have reigned in this uh, presidential contest. Totally agree. The minute they got rid of him, I thought that's it. Trump's yeah. going to get it. Yeah. So I think that this is a big, big eye opener for people who consider themselves progressive, and uh, and you know, there's always going to be waxing and waning. There's a, the, the, in any kind of uh, evolutionary process, and uh, and I, I think that this is a this is horrible and it tastes bad, but it's 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 a necessary. Uh, 
sort of like the come to Jesus moment uh, for uh, for the uh, for for people who consider themselves progressives. Uh, I'm I'm holding on to that uh, as I work through my own emotional process. Well, I heard Bernie talking on on uh, one of the talk shows the other night saying that you know that they're going to have to seek a um, you know kind of an outsider figure to run in uh, in uh, 2020. Because the days of the, you know, your so-called career politicians might well be over, at least in terms of the way that um, people want to, you know, what they want their president to be. I mean, they want want an outsider. That's what, you know, Bernie, yes, he was a, a politician, but, you know, he was also outside of a lot of, you know, much of the system anyway. So, you know, Mm -hmm. that's what we need. He thinks it's not going to be him, obviously, but he thinks that we need a sort of young Bernie Sanders type. (laughs) 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 Well, we'll we'll, we'll see where this all leads. And I, you know, I I tend to think that uh, this is not going to inevitably lead to an apocalypse scenario. I do think that there's that there are enough checks and balances in place to keep something like that from happening, but it's it's a real challenge. We've got a real challenge ahead of us right now. It's going to be a long four years. <laughs>